welcome back, everybody, to the Story Symbol Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of Scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and I am joined today by Jackie Mitchell. Hey, good Jackie, to be here. Good to be with you today. Uh, if you are enjoying this podcast, if you're listening, please give us a rating and review on whatever platform you might be listening on. It mm-hmm. always helps us out. And we did a giveaway mm-hmm. for our 20th episode, which was officially the marker that put us into the elite <laughs> podcast <laughs> category. Top 1%. That's pretty elite. Well, how would you define elite? No, I mean, that's fine. I just... <laughs> I like how it's, it's also like top 1% of episodes recorded. Yeah, not, I know. Not like popularity. Right, exactly. Right? So, uh, but elite nonetheless, producer Jerry has joined us. Yeah, he's here in the studio again. Jerry, what's up, man? He waved, which he waved. you guys can't hear. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't like to be, uh, doesn't like to be on camera. <laughs> um, so in that giveaway right? We asked people to email us questions. Mm -hmm. And so we got several good questions, some of which we won't get to because it will happen at some point in the story. I believe Caitlin Heilman asked us a question about heaven and hell, Yeah, which uh, we're going to talk about. We'll get there. Um, Yeah. Heaven has been talked about already. It's true. We haven't really talked about hell yet. Mm -hmm. And so we'll we'll, we'll get there at some point. One question that Krista Solly asked us is to talk a little bit about Bible translations. Yeah. And to talk about which ones we should use and how they get translated. And, yeah, who and, wrote and, them, who translated them. Yeah, who translated them, them yeah. and, and all of that. And so um, there, there, I can't remember who wrote the book, but there's a book called Scribes in Scripture, mm. which gives a really good history of this, like all the, like of uh, manuscript translation, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not boring. I know that sounds pretty boring. <laughs> But it's like, okay. but it's you written. Say. It's written in a way that's not like overly scholarly, overly okay. academic. But it talks about this amazing tradition of scribes that the Bible comes from. Mm. You know, the reason that we have we did that episode with Sean, yeah, uh, Patterson, where we talked about uh, all of the 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 manuscripts that we have, and the reason that we have that and basically nothing else like it is because of this incredible tradition of scribes. Mm-hmm. That it came from. There were there were people uh, uh, with you know there were like uh, families within the people of God who were called scribes, mm-hmm. and they would they would just copy just their whole lives, whole life, yeah. And they would have certain sayings. Some of them that would be like, if one letter perishes, the whole world perishes. Mm. So they took it really seriously, yeah. and they were really good at it. And what ends up happening is that we have enough of those different manuscripts that we actually can do uh, critical scholarship. Yeah. And we and, and we can actually look at the manuscripts and we can triangulate all of this data and we can figure out really to almost exactness like the original. Yeah. You know, the, the original accurate text, mm-hmm. right? You can never do it with 100% certainty. But um, if you had one manuscript from 50 years after it was supposed to be written, that would be very early. But what if that manuscript has a bunch of mistakes? Yeah, how do you check? How do you check? There's no way to triangulate the data. But if you have thousands and thousands of manuscripts and there are textual variants and there's differences in them, you can actually look at all of that, see what where they came from, mm-hmm. uh, who was translating them, what are the similarities, what are the differences, and you can actually start to triangulate what that original text looks yeah, like. Yeah, so if something gets changed, it's really easy to say, well, that's the only manuscript that has that. Right. That can't be true. 
And there's really no other ancient manuscripts that have yeah. enough of this data to do what people do in terms of textual criticism with the yeah. Bible. Yeah. And so uh, it's 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 pretty it's pretty remarkable what mm-hmm. we have and what it's come from. Now, the Bible was translated into so so the Old Testament is Hebrew, mm-hmm. and the New Testament is Greek, mm-hmm. and there's some Aramaic phrases here and there, right? Mm-hmm. But that's really the, that's it. And uh, at some point, the Bible was translated by a guy named Jerome into Latin, mm-hmm. and then essentially the the Roman Catholic Church started to use Latin for a long time. And they would do their uh, their masses in Latin. They still they still do this. Yeah, a lot degree, do. Right? Yeah, um, and that that's called the Latin Vulgate. That became kind of the authoritative translation for a long time in the Catholic Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church that speaks Greek use would the Greek. continue to use the Greek. Makes sense. Uh, and they would use uh, what's called the Septuagint for the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yeah. Right. Um, and it really wasn't until, you know, like the 1400s that there started to be this push for translation into common language. Yeah. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I'm actually not as big of a conspiracy theorist on this as most people are. Like, you know, uh, people have ideas about the church really trying to maintain power over the people and all this stuff. And I'm sure that that plays into some degree, but that's not generally the reason people make decisions like this, and in, in, in my opinion. So um, the first people who tried to translate the Bible into common languages uh, did not go well for them. Yeah. They're heretics. Uh, they were excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And uh, eventually, you know, something along around the 1500s, we got an English translation. Then uh, there's, a, there's an English king named James. King James. See where this is going. And the King James version of the Bible became the authoritative English translation for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's old English. So if you try to read the King James version, a lot of it you actually won't be able to understand because we yeah. don't speak old English anymore. Yeah, so there's true. something called the new King James version that's helped, that helps make it a little bit more clear to us. But the King James version uh, became the, the, um, the, the authoritative version of the English text for a long time. And actually... The King James Version of the Bible plus Shakespeare is where most of the foundation of our current English language comes from. Wow. The two most powerful English works of all time Mm. are basically Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible. Mm. And the King James Version of the Bible is is what what influenced a lot of the language that that Shakespeare uses. So um, uh, where we are today and I think this is mostly what people are going to be interested in, mm-hmm. right? Is now we just have a plethora of translations, English yeah. translations. We can, yeah. you know, you can you can pick from a hundred different English translations of the Bible. Certainly, some are more popular than others, and yeah. so that's probably the ones people are familiar with. But the question is, which one should I choose, and what's the difference between them? Mm-hmm. So the way that I usually will will phrase this is, um, every translation, in my opinion, that gets put out there is like, quote unquote, good mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, it's experts who are doing it yeah. and there's some kind of consensus. Yeah. And uh, the difference between them is going to be the difference in philosophy, translation philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So like translating word for word mm. or phrase by phrase, right? Exactly. Yeah. So something called dynamic translation mm-hmm. or something called a wooden translation. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
dynamic is thought for thought. Yes. Phrase for yeah. phrase. And wooden is word for word. Which is sometimes word for word translations tend to be a little bit more difficult to read because languages don't always speak in the same manners. Exactly. Right? So the way we structure our phrases in English or our sentences are not often how other, you know, uh, Greek, no. you know, translates theirs. No, not at all. And, yeah. and so, uh, so you're right. So uh, Hebrew is incredibly different. Yes. Than English. Yeah. Greek is very different than English. Yeah. It's a little bit more. That's true. Because English is influenced by some of the Romance languages, mm -hmm. especially French. And so uh, it comes sort of from that mm -hmm. kind of tongue. It's a different alphabet. And so it is very different. It's a little bit closer. Hebrew is like, I mean, I think we talked about this before, but there was a discovery in the 1900s that actually allowed us to understand what a lot of these strange words in the Bible meant. Mm -hmm because we finally found the cognate language, mm -hmm. uh, Akkadian, where uh, some of the King James Version, they don't know what these Hebrew words mean. Mm -hmm. And so there's some really strange translations in there because we don't, we didn't have it. Because yeah. Hebrew is a dead language, and most of what we have in Hebrew is from the Bible. Mm. Uh, so uh, in terms of the word-for-word -word versus the thought-for-thought -thought translations, um, Here's the way that I here's the way that I would say it. it depends on what you want from your Bible. Mm -hmm. If you want word for word because you're interested in kind of maintaining the original syntax and word order and that kind of stuff, maybe you're you're doing a study for seminary or you are just interested in in that kind of accuracy, mm -hmm. then I would recommend some of the word for word translations. Mm -hmm. the The popular ones would be the NASB, the New American Standard Bible which is very wooden, and so it's awkward a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but but if you're doing language study, you should, that is probably the one you should use. Uh, one that's a little bit easier to read that is also very word-for-word uh, word is the ESV, mm -hmm. English Standard Version. This is what I had to use in seminary uh, because it's closer to... Yeah, same. This is what I used in yeah. undergrad, yeah. Yep. Um, and so then in the thought-for-thought thought world, the ones that are most popular are going to be the NIV, mm -hmm. maybe the CSB, Mm -hmm. the the um, Christian standard standard Bible, and the new IV is the new inter international version, and these are you know thought for thought. They are going to feel a little bit more fluid and natural in yeah. the English, but it, they're not going to be as concerned with maintaining structure and word order, sure stuff like that, yeah. right? Um, and so you know there are times where that leads to some issues because uh, one of the things we're going to see is like. Um, I think I think we're we're going to talk about it this week. This week we're talking about Egypt, um, but in the garden, uh, the the Eve sees the apple. She sees that it's good, and so she takes it. Right. The word "good" in Hebrew is "tov." Transliteration is "tov." Good. Uh, when David sees Bathsheba on the roof. Mm -hmm. All, all of our English translation says he sees that she's beautiful. And mm -hmm. so he takes her. But that word for beautiful is tov. Mm -hmm. So in the Hebrew, you're going to see that that is the fall of David. Mm -hmm. Just like the garden was the fall of man. He does the same thing. He sees it, yeah. sees that it's good, so he takes it. Same as in the garden. And you miss that mm -hmm. in a translation because it would be weird if in the English it said he saw Bathsheba and he saw that she was good. Yeah. 
it's not exactly the the semantic range is different mm-hmm. in English than it is in Hebrew. So tov can mean beautiful in Hebrew. It doesn't really mean that in English. So you have to make that kind of decision where you're going to lose something by maintaining something else, mm-hmm. right? So um, there's also some Bible translations that I would call paraphrase translations, mm-hmm. like the New Living Translation, the Message. Um, my recommendation for these, and I'm actually a huge Eugene Peterson fan, mm-hmm. uh, who, who's the guy who did the Message Bible. My recommendation for these is to maybe use them as supplements. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Where um, if you only read out of the message, I think that there's some deficiencies in that mm-hmm. because it's not actually trying to be true to even the the thought. Yeah. It's trying to to say what is trying to be said in a way that they think gets at the point better. Yeah. So it's a good help if if you're reading a, a difficult passage, maybe you read it in your Bible, you're reading the NIV, maybe you're reading the ESV, whatever. You say, I, I wonder what another like summarization of this right. passage would yeah, be like. That's a great, yeah, it's a great way to look at it. If you're, if you're really nerdy and you want to understand like how something was translated, there's something called the Net Bible, the NET Bible, mm. and it, you can go to netbible.com or you can get a Net Bible with full translator notes, and it will have like one phrase, and then it will have paragraphs of translation notes. Yeah, where it came from, why, why they decided to use this word instead of another word, what the tradition says, what about this, you know, the Masoretic text versus this, the the text that they found in the dead, the dead sea scrolls. And, you know, it, it'll actually mm-hmm. tell you that stuff. And so, um, if you're ever interested in that, that's, that's a really good resource. Yeah. The, the net Bible. I don't actually, the translation itself of the net Bible is actually pretty bland. Mm. I don't really, it's not like, I don't know. It's not fun to read. It's not great. <laughs> um, it's somewhere in the middle of, of the stuff we've been talking about, but translation notes are great. Yeah. Um, and so I would say, uh, which translation of the Bible should I use? Being in local church ministry, uh, I would say, just please read the Bible. Yeah. Right? Because people don't. Yeah. So anything yeah. is better than nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And all of them are good. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we use in our church when we put stuff up on the screen and when we, we read from stuff is almost always the NIV mm-hmm. because it's kind of the easiest. Uh, and then in some of my classes, I'm using the ESV. Yeah, I, I read ESV. So I would recommend kind of those two yeah. as like your standard starters. And then if you really do get to a place where you want to experience some other stuff, then then there's all kinds of other totally fine translations you can get into. Yeah. But, you know, I'm generally positive about Bible translation. So I think that they're good. <laughs> you know, they're experts. Yeah. Like they, they, you know, they're different philosophies. And so maybe you want a different philosophy for this or that, but, but uh, pretty, pretty, pretty good. Get one and read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I second that. All right. You have anything to add with the Bible translation stuff? No, I, I mean, I think that's great. I think, you know, when you talk about it being good, it would be a monumental task for someone to take on to translate the Bible to not like, like people aren't just doing it. It's so costly. People aren't doing it right. to just translate it wrong. Right. Right. right it's right, right. so costly and it's so time consuming. Yeah. And so the the translations that we do have are from experts that, yep. you know, we do trust. And yeah. There's definitely parts of translation where uh, ideology and theology 
okay. gets involved. Yeah. Of course. Right. Because like we said, like, no, I mean, words don't just mean what they mean. Yeah. They mean what they mean in context. So Catholic Bibles are going to read differently than, than these Protestant Bibles. And there's evangelical Bibles that are going to read differently than, you know, some, than the Orthodox study Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that that's inescapable. Yeah. Right. And, and so uh, that that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to happen, but just, you know, get one of these, Available translations. Get a Bible reading. and yeah. read the Bible. Uh, we're reading from the NIV on this podcast, yes. which is which is probably yeah. should we should say that. So okay, so where do we leave off last week, Jackie? So we saw the call of Abram. He's called from the land of where his father is residing. He leaves the land with his wife and his nephew, and he starts out towards Canaan. He actually makes it there, correct? And yeah, builds yeah. an altar. Yeah, he makes it in between Bethel and or, I. Yeah. And then goes south to the Negev. Yeah. We don't really know why, but um, yeah. So so Noah, uh, so Abram is a descendant of Noah. Mm -hmm. Noah's son, Shem. And his family ends up in Ur. And like we talked about a few episodes ago, it's the center of all civilization. Mm -hmm. People come together, and they build a ziggurat or a tower, a temple that reaches to the heavens because they want to Build a name for themselves. <laughs> Make a name for yeah. themselves. And so uh, that is rebellion. That is sin. And so Abram is from this wickedness and sin. Mm -hmm. And later in the Bible, it's going to talk about how his father, Terah, worshipped idols. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Abram is called from that, right? In in a stunning display of love and power by God, Uh he, he who comes from that is going to be the vessel through which God brings blessing to the world. Mm -hmm. And so he tells him, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. Yeah. And the key, uh, which we'll probably do a whole episode on in the future, is is this. Abram went. Yeah, he did what God said. Did what God said. So we talked about this last time, right? Uh, obedience is a part of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that might sound that might sound scary to people, depending on what you were raised in. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, to have faith is not to answer a true false question correctly. Yeah, did, I mean, did, James will hit on this later. Right? He says you believe in one God. Okay, even the demons believe that. Yeah, exactly. What if, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and what of it? Yeah. What, it, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and and then you you read the the gospels and the demons know who Jesus is. Yeah. So it's not enough to just say, okay, I know Jesus is God. Right. Yeah. Uh, or to say, I think he died for my sins. Yeah. Or to say, I believe uh, that I'm a sinner, mm -hmm. but in Christ, um, but I put my belief in Christ and so I'm saved. Yeah. Uh, it is a, a holistic disposition and movement of your person. Right, because we do believe those things. It's what does that belief then prompt me to do? Yeah. And, you know, it's hard sometimes to draw this line, but if God called Abram and said, go to, I'm, you know, I'm the Lord, go to Canaan. And yeah. Abram was like, yeah, yeah. I, I believe you. I believe you're the Lord. But he stayed in yeah. Haran. Then would he be faithful? And does he really believe that God is the Lord? Right. If he doesn't obey what God says, it shows that he doesn't really believe that God's who he says he is. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we do have to do some work on this mm -hmm. as, as American Protestants because sure. we neuter faith. Mm -hmm. 
by telling people that they have to think something and then pray a prayer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, everything else, including the rest of your life and whether or not you're obedient to God, that's gravy yeah. on top, right? Yeah. But you already have it, right? You already have it because you prayed the prayer, so you're saved. Um, that That is not what the Bible calls faith, mm-hmm. right? Uh, faith, uh, an easy way to think about it is there's three parts. There's a cognitive part where mm-hmm. you do have to think something. Absolutely. And believe it. There's a trust part, relational part where you actually have to trust that God is who he says he is. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, you're not going to step into that, right? Ab- if Abram didn't think that Yahweh was someone to listen to, he wouldn't have gone, yeah. right? So you have to think it, you have to trust it, and then you have to embody it. You have to do it. Faithfulness is part of faith. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, you know, the Greek word for faith is pistis. And the Greek word for faithfulness is pistis. Mm. So... The semantic range of that word covers everything everything that we're talking yeah. about, right? Um, this does not mean that you're saved by your works. You're not. Right. You're saved by the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That is something that is a free gift. You could not have done that on your own. There's nothing that you could have done to enact that kind of salvific power. Mm-hmm. God has done that through his own love, and it's free, mm. right? Um, and the grace of God will meet you right where you are. But N.T. Wright says that the grace of God that meets you where you are is never satisfied to leave you as you are. Mm. And so your life becomes a life of embodied allegiance to Christ. Yeah, That's what it means to be a Christian. Um, and when we fall, the grace of God allows us to get back up. Mm-hmm. But... The, uh, I've heard, you know, we don't talk about this so much in our tradition. I've heard Greek Orthodox scholars say that the purpose of life is repentance. Mm. Because to repent is to turn away from whatever you're yeah. giving your allegiance to. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's not just saying, sorry, sorry I did that. Right. Because if you are sorry that you did that, you'll turn away from that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we said that the, when, when the flood subsided, the waters repented. Yeah. Turned around. So um, that is faith mm-hmm. in, in the Christian Bible. And um, it does not mean that you're saved by your works. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. And people will try to hold that juxtaposition up. Um, and, you know, there's hyper-reformed theology and hyper-Calvinist theology that will try to hold that up and say, if you think you have to actually be faithful in order to be saved— uh, you know, you're, you're a Pelagian mm. um, who was a heretic. Mm. It's not true. Abram went. He didn't think something. Yeah. Well, he did. Well, he, he believed and his belief then proved his actions. Right. Yeah. So this is something worth considering as we move forward because that, that could be different than what you were taught faith means. Mm-hmm. And um, that question could have a, a significant impact on your life and in your faith. And so we're, we're going to keep seeing Abram being faithful to God, and we're going to keep seeing what happens when people aren't faithful to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we left off with Abram in the Negev, which to the best of our knowledge is the desert-like south of what will become the promised mm-hmm. land. And so we'll pick up in Genesis 12, 10 through 13. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, 
I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. All right. So we're already getting into a little bit of a dicey situation, right? Yeah. So many people, and this is the way that I had heard this interpreted, even all the way up into some seminary classes, they interpret this as Abram committing a sin mm-hmm. because he tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister, but she's his wife. Yeah. And it seems like he does that to save his own hide, right? Because mm-hmm. to, 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 they'll let him live. Um, I actually don't think that this is a, a correct interpretation. Mm. I actually don't think that Abram is doing something wrong here, and I'll, I'll explain, I'll mm-hmm. explain why as, as we go. But this, uh, the text has given us some clues so far that Abram and his family are very wealthy and they're very powerful. And yeah. so he is like a, he's like a powerful sheik of, at this time. And he's got servants and he's got cattle and he's, he's mm-hmm. got tents and he's, he's moving like this. Um, and, and so uh, he, he is to some degree expecting to be respected, even yeah. by Pharaoh. Right? This isn't a homeless wanderer coming into his land. This is someone who has stuff. This is a man of wealth and possessions. Yeah, well, he seems to think that Pharaoh will see them and and be proximate to them. Right. Which, if you enter a kingdom, that doesn't mean you meet with the king, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, so, so he's, that's a good he's point. assuming he'll be in contact with Pharaoh to some degree. Yep. And so he goes to Egypt because there's a famine. And he's in the desert, uh, foreshadowing a few chapters later when Jacob's sons have to go to Egypt mm-hmm. because there's a famine. Mm hmm. Um, and when he gets there, he tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister rather than his wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, first of all, he's not actually lying. Yeah. Right. This doesn't really sit well with us, but in Genesis 20, uh, he has a conversation with Abimelech, who's a king. And in that conversation, it comes up that Sarai is actually his half sister. Yeah. Sarah is his half sister. And that's strange to us. Very common in the ancient world. Yeah. Very common in tribal worlds, cousins, half-sisters, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's much more intermarriage. So first of all, he's not actually lying, right? Mm-hmm. He's being selective with the yeah. information that he tells. And second of all, he knows that she's beautiful and he knows that Pharaoh's going to want her. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of raises the question, how does he know this? Mm. It could be as simple as just, you know, powerful men want and take pretty women it happens tale as old as time yeah. but it's actually deeper than that like you look at the bible and what you're going to see is that idolaters always try to take what's beautiful and good for themselves mm. so the humans in the garden they see that the fruit is good like we talked about earlier that it's tov and so they take it mm-hmm. david does the same thing with bathsheba right this is when we rebel against god it manifests in us worshiping things that make us take the true, the good, and the beautiful and try to hoard it, try to take mm-hmm. it for ourselves, right? Try to snatch it from who it ultimately belongs to. Um, and so Pharaoh and the Egyptians are worshipers of false gods. And so he thinks this is what they're going to do. Mm. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this thing that happened after the fall where God says to the serpent, there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, mm. between the serpent and the woman. And we, we, we usually only remember the part where he says there's going to be enmity between your seed yeah. and him. But first he says there's going to be enmity between the woman, the carrier of the seed, mm-hmm. and 
the serpent. Because if the serpent can tempt and take the carrier of the seed, then what chance does the seed have? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is part of the theology of Mary, the holiness of Mary, the virginity of Mary, Mm -hmm. is that she has not been taken by the en- enmity of, of the serpent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what you're going to read in, in, in Genesis is that Pharaoh is consistently held up as an image of the serpent. Yeah. Right? So the serpent is, is crafty, mm-hmm. is what it says in Genesis 3. In Exodus, when the new Pharaoh comes along and starts torturing God's people, um, it, it uses a very similar word to mm-hmm. describe him. And so Pharaoh is kind of like the embodiment of a serpent. He thinks mm-hmm. he's a god. He does the bidding of the the fallen angels, yeah. the fallen gods, and uh, so he is an embodiment of of the serpent. And so there's going to be enmity mm-hmm. between Pharaoh and the woman, the carrier of the seed. And thirdly, he says that she uh, that she is his brother, uh, not only because that's true, but also to save her. Yeah. So in the ancient world, the sister's business is not handled by the father. The sister's business is handled by the brothers. Mm. They are her protectors. And so if you want to marry a woman, you actually have to go through her brother or brothers. Mm. This is the way that that the family dynamic was set up. So you're going to see a crazy story in uh, in Genesis a little bit later yeah. about some of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Mm-hmm. And there's this story where their sister, Dina, uh, gets raped mm-hmm. by Shechem, who, who is a, who's a Hivite. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees her and he takes her, mm-hmm. like idolaters tend to do. And then he, and then he goes to the family and asks for her to be given yeah. to, to, to the son who did this. Right. And then the families are going to intermix. And so <laughs> the sons of Jacob say, yeah, 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 sure. She can, uh, she can marry the guy who raped her. Um, but you're all going to have to get circumcised first because mm-hmm. that's our custom. So after you guys, all your tribe circumcise themselves, we'll give Dina to, to this to this guy. And so all the Hivites circumcise themselves. And as they're recovering from their surgery, yeah. Simeon and Levi, two of the sons, they slaughter all of them. Yeah. And God is not going to look at this as if that was a good thing for them to do. So mm-hmm. he doesn't reward them for it. And this is reflected in the blessings that Jacob give, uh, prays over his sons before he dies. But you understand why this happened. Mm-hmm. Because they are the protectors of their sister. Mm-hmm. And so that's their business. Mm-hmm. Now, God's going to say that's not the right way to go about it. But that's why you see that story. That's yeah. not just two hotheads going crazy. That is them playing the roles that they're supposed to play in their families, the same thing happens with David. Yeah, you know, um, his son Amnon <laughs> rapes his daughter Tamar, and the other son Absalom mm-hmm. kills Amnon. Yeah, and all that's because Absalom is the protector of the sister. Absolutely, that's the custom. Yeah, and so technically, as a respected and somewhat powerful sheik, that it seems like Abraham is. He is hopeful that Pharaoh will come to him and ask him if he wants his sister. Yeah. And then he can come up with some way probably to say no. Hmm. Right. Uh, That's the plan. Mm -hmm. So then let's read Genesis 12, 14 through 16. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. 
And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Okay. So Pharaoh does what Abram knew he was going to do or what he was afraid he was going to do, what idolaters do. He sees that she's beautiful, he wants her, and so he takes her. And Pharaoh does not follow the custom. He is not respectful. He does not ask Abram if he can do this. Mm -hmm. He throws... Wealth at some him. stuff, yeah. Here's some sheep, here's some cattle, here's some servants, here's some donkeys, here's some camels. And uh, you know, not that different from what you see today. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what happens in settlements. Yeah. Right? Take what you want, and I'll pay the family some money if I get in trouble for it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so um uh, my opinion is that Abram is not in the wrong. Mm. Pharaoh is in the wrong. And here's here's really why I think that, because in this next section, you're going to see the judgment of the Lord, mm-hmm. and we're going to see who the judgment of the Lord comes upon. Yeah, that's true. So let's, let's read 17 through 20. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. All right. So first of all, judgment is not cast upon Abram. Mm-hmm. Judgment is cast upon Pharaoh. Yeah. And if you're familiar with the biblical story and, you, and you're familiar with the stories within the Bible, you will see that God is not hesitant to cast judgment upon his own people. Right. He does that when they fall, and, and that's the promise that he puts out in front of them right away. And uh, I would actually say that to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. And judgment starts with the house of God. So he judges his own people harshly mm-hmm. um, because he's given them so much. And he does not judge Abram here. Mm-hmm. He judges Pharaoh. And the way that he judges Pharaoh is kind of interesting. It's the same way that he's going to judge Pharaoh in the next book. Yeah, with plagues, <laughs> disease. Yeah. Yeah, plagues. And so this is actually the first exodus mm-hmm. because um, plagues come upon Pharaoh and his household and uh, the people of God escape. Yeah. Right? Um, remember in the covenant that he gives to Abram, he says, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. What? I'll curse them. So, well, Pharaoh's cursed Abram by taking what he described as his sister in an improper way. And so mm-hmm. the Passover plagues come upon him and his household. And so what's what's Pharaoh's response? Yeah, he says, why did you do this? It's your fault. He blames Abram. Yeah. So he, he took her improperly because that's what the wicked do, mm-hmm. like taking the apple from the tree, the fruit from the tree. Um, and then he blames Abram, who is righteous, because that's what the wicked do. Mm-hmm. Because what did Adam do? Yeah. He said to God, well, you put this woman here. This is kind of your fault. So Adam blamed God. Yeah, which is crazy. Right? And Pharaoh blames Abram. Yeah. Even though Pharaoh's the one who who did the, you know, what he, what he shouldn't do. Yeah. And so this is the pattern of behavior for those who are opposed to God. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, you know, they, they will always blame the, the righteous for, for what happens to them. And he says this crazy thing about, like, you should have told me she was your wife. It's like, why? So, so you could kill him? 
Yeah. Like that's what Abram knew what was going to happen. If I say you're my wife, they'll kill me. Right. Yeah. If, this, if I say you're my sister, maybe they'll try to negotiate with me and I can mm -hmm. figure out why you can't go to the house of Pharaoh. Yeah. So they just take her. Um, and so Pharaoh sends Abram away with all of the spoils that he had already received from Pharaoh and, you know, the donkeys and the camels and the servants and the sheep. And so um, when the people of God, Israel, the Hebrews, are delivered in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, they leave with a bunch of spoils. Mm -hmm. Right? So I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And it all fits mm -hmm. into the initial promise to Abram. And so um, Abram goes down into Egypt. He is he and his family are assaulted mm -hmm. by Pharaoh and Abram leaves with blessings and Pharaoh is left cursed by plagues. Mm. So this is a microcosm of the promise that God has already made, right? Mm. So God's being faithful to his promises already. And this is the end of chapter 12. Mm -hmm. So next time we'll, we'll get back into this and we'll pick up in Genesis 13 and I promise we'll actually do the entire chapter. I will do all of Genesis okay, 13. if you promise. It's, it's a little bit easier. <laughs> uh, but I just want to end by by pointing out some some things in terms of what to look for in the rest of the story mm. of, of Abram. Um, one thing that I want people to at least grasp from this podcast is that there is this insane connectivity in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Everything is connected to everything else. Yeah. Right. And so we're going to see Abram, who is called a priest, with his bride, Sarai, uh, and they're going to be promised land, and they're going to be promised a seed, mm -hmm. right? And so in the beginning, God made a beautiful garden, which is land, and he puts Adam, the human, in the garden and commands him to protect it, which means Adam is the priest. The main job of a priest is to protect the holy space. And God gives the priest, Adam, a bride. And because she's put in the garden with Adam, he is called to protect her too. Mm -hmm. And he fails in this, right? He lets the serpent come, come to her, fails in his, his priestly task. Uh, and then God responds to this rebellion and failure, amongst other things, by, by promising what to the woman? A seed. Seed. Mm -hmm. And so you see all of the same parallels, mm -hmm. right? Abram is a new Adam just like Noah was a new Adam. Mm -hmm. so the promises of God flow through, the, this, this pattern mm -hmm. repeats itself, right? And so Abram is the new priest called out by God to go and establish land, which is where this event, adventure is headed. He's supposed to protect it by being righteous and by executing judgment, which is, which is his priestly task. And his bride, Sarah, is promised a seed, which will ultimately culminate in the birth of Isaac. Mm -hmm. And so you can map all of that over the first three chapters of Genesis yeah. almost exactly, right? Yeah. And so I, I think that's where the Bible gets cool. Yeah. Right? Uh, once you start connecting these dots and piecing the story together, I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so next week we'll pick up in Genesis 13 with the story of Abram and Lot separating yeah. each other. So trouble trouble in paradise, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so we'll get there next week. Got anything else? That's it. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week on Story Silver Spirit. Mm -hmm.